Welcome to Inside America's Minds, a series of original podcasts created and hosted by clinical psychologist, Dr. Jody J. DeLuca. Inside America's Minds features fascinating conversations with everyday people like you and me and their extraordinary experiences. Join us for this thought-provoking episode on Inside America's Minds. Today, I'd like to welcome you to part two of the controversial life of Mickey Royal on Inside America's Minds. And thank you so much for being here, Mickey. I do appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Well, the, the, first, uh, the first interview that we had, which is on a lot of different platforms, we, we got a lot of response from it. So I have a lot of questions to ask you. And as you know, they're going to be quite difficult. But as I know, you're always very forthcoming. So I want to thank you for that. For those of you who have not listened or seen the first interview with Mickey, Mickey is a best-selling author. Uh, probably your most renowned book is The Pimp Game. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Um, you're a former... Oh, hold that up again so we can see Mickey. The Pimp Game. Okay. Uh, former gang member a former gangster, which, you know, I had to look up the definition, the definition and the difference between gangster and gang member. So, you know, a gang member is part of an organization and a gangster is a criminal. Do you agree with that? Uh, when, I, when I use them in those interchangeable ways, when I say a uh, gang member or gang banger, that was in my youth. Gang say, banger, yeah. Right. Okay. When I say gangster, I'm referring to certain uh, ethnic groups that I was employed and affiliated with, primarily Italian and early old Russian. Italian and Russian, okay. Mm -hmm. And you are a member of the Fruit of Islam? Are you still oh, a no. member? You're no, not. That was, uh, I left that at age uh, 17 or 18. Okay. And I went because during that time, I was trying my best to pull away from criminal activities and things like that, but I just couldn't. And okay. like Doc Holliday and Tombstone, my hypocrisy goes only so far. So I had to make a choice and I made a choice to go back into the life and I didn't get out till I was 41. Okay. And how old are you? Well, actually your birthday's tomorrow. Uh, how? 49. Okay. Former paid enforcer, former pornographer, former pimp, former drug dealer. Your mom was a member of the Black Panther political party. Your dad was a member of the USSR military service via Mali. Uh, we also talked about, you know, some very, very um, uh, complex issues, such as your first arrest at the age of five in daycare um, for actually defending yourself when um, another, another little peer bit you, and then you later bashed his face and head in, which you don't recall. Okay. No, but there's, uh, your mom told you. So 
There were also times during our interview that you became very emotional. So between the time you and I first met and between this interview, the thing that kept crossing my mind that I wanted to ask you is what changed? How do you go from an individual who has a life of crime, who has a life of dealing with drugs and pimping women and the sex trafficking to where you are now? What changed? What changed? A lot of um, absorption of pain and a word I learned a couple of years ago, um, energy. And when you first become a pimp, it's always, it's always regarded almost as a stereotype, your emotions, because in order to even enter something like that, you're already so hardened. It's, you know, and I was already desensitized long before I even got into that. I had done way more extreme things. So that was actually almost like a vacation. And you develop emotional attachments to people who risk their lives for you every day and who are with you for years at a time. And whether you like to admit it or not, there is some humanity in you as much as I you know, took delight in destroying it within myself. And you become, you go from a narcissistic sadist to an empath and it's a gradual thing. And it took over 20 years for this to happen. And when it just came to a head, I just, and I was in love with a certain person at the time. And I said, I can't do this anymore. And she was like, what part is that? Any of it. I said, I, I don't want to be in the pain business anymore. And I've been in the pain business since I was 13 years old. Because I, I saw something, something had changed. And then when my daughter passed away, it just, I just snapped. And, and, uh, but I had changed before that happened. I knew. Okay, so, so I'm going to interrupt you here because you've said some really profound things. Number one, you said that pimping was like a vacation. Uh, what, what do you mean by that? Because, and, and define pimping for the audience. I want to make sure that we're all on the same page with this. Well, pimping is, a, is, is, is not a microcosm and it's a wide range. It's like saying that guy's a drug dealer. Well, what does he do? He sells nickel bags at the park. Well, that guy's a drug dealer too. What does he do? Oh, that's El Chapo standing over there. And those guys find a helicopter, they're drug dealers too. What do they do? See that sign that says Pfizer on the side? So it's all of it encompasses it. So how did I start? Oh, 83rd and Figueroa at a motel called uh, the Five Star. That was it. But it got all the way up to and including overseas, different countries. Um, my main money was made in what we call in-call. That's with escorts. And... Uh, that was a lot of fun. And that so, was pretty pretty safe, but it's you're providing gentlemen with the company of a young lady for a short while and you sell fantasies. So as it, it there are different levels and there's different stages of progression. Or like I said, ascent or descent, growth or however you want to look at it. But, but I've done it all. Anything that has anything to do with the exchange of sex for money or fantasy, I did from voyage shows, pornography, uh, massive swinger parties, uh, to literally standing out on the corners with my crushed velvet hat on and my gold Cadillac. I mean, all of it. Okay, know. so uh, what is a nickel bag? Oh, that's just a, a $5 bag of, 
uh, marijuana. They call it okay. nipple bags. Uh, or it could be okay. Well, you have to educate me in the audience. Oh, you know, I know it depends on where you're, where you're working, where you're, you know, living your life, the pulse on the vibe. There, there's different urban uh, language for it. So that's that's a five dollar bag of pot. Usually marijuana. Usually marijuana. Okay, so so the pimping is a, a is if I hear you correctly is a vacation when you compare it to to the selling of drugs on the street before you started to pimp or how how is it a vacation? It was natural for me. You know, it was very natural. It felt good. Um, it was lots of women being the center of their attention. I really enjoyed that. And compared to getting shot twice already by the time I was 17, um, things like that and the okay. associations with the people I dealt with and being an enforcer, it was nothing along those lines. Now, it was times that I had to do things like that. Like people say, like they asked me in one interview in the, in the Nat Geo one, did you ever get violent? So I had to be violent all the time in the pimp game, but not with my women. I had to be violent with those who were violent with them. Okay, so you had to be violent during your time as a pimp, but not with the women, but with the men who who were violent with them. So, yeah. and, and this brings us, and I have so many more questions to ask you, but this brings us to how how do you rationalize selling women and the incidents of them getting hurt and, and abused and objectified? And I know this is not the first time you've had this conversation. I've, I've watched uh -huh. other interviews, so I, I appreciate you not you know, saying, I don't want it. I appreciate you continuing the conversation with me and for the audience to learn from it. Again, there is no judgment, but there is an education. But for me, because I've also worked with so many women as well as men who have been victims of sex trade, of pimping, of, of abuse of all sorts, uh, this is valuable information. And again, my long-term question is, how did you get from where you were to where you are now? But, but going back, so you and I, in our first interview, we talked about at the age of eight, how you were basically violated and raped by a mature adult woman who was actually the mother of a friend of yours from school. And we also talked about how maybe that had something to do with your whole life, your whole work has been, in, in, has involved sex. Would you agree? Yeah, okay. yeah definitely. Uh, I was watching, I remember my first scene I ever watched, it was uh, John Holmes, uh, Johnny Keys, and Linda Wong. It was Swedish Erotica, volume 10. I may have been 11. Okay. And now that was when my uncle stayed with us and I used to go through his stuff. And I saw, I said, why does he have a VHS tape in the back of his um, drawer in this special case when we have all these VHS tapes down here? Mm -hmm. And once I put it in, my whole world changed. And, you know, it was known, it was, it was something real funny. My uncle's passed away now, so I don't feel bad about telling this story. But my uncle and I had come over to my cousin's house. My cousin has four sons. And they were cutting up and stuff and having little issues with each other. They were young, all of them under the age of 10. 
And he said, why don't you just let them watch some porn or something to ease them out? And he said, I'm not going to let my kids watch no goddamn porn. And he said, I used to let me watch porn as a child. And I looked at him and said, and it didn't affect my life not one bit. And everybody in the room started laughing. Okay. But no, my whole life has been surrounded by that. And a lot of loss. A lot yeah. of loss. So this is the first time I'm hearing that you had a 13-year-old daughter that died. No, she wasn't 13. How old was she? I'm sorry. Uh, she lived for five minutes. But She lived for five minutes. Where did I? So, okay, I'll have to. There was 13 in there somewhere. I'll have to go replay that. But No, I was 13 when I started my official okay. two feet in criminal okay. career. You're cr okay. Thank you for correcting me on that. It's so, so you go from this life, which is a very, again, controversial and hard life and in and out of prison of all the things that you have learned since your first memory, what has been the most profound in your life to date, Mickey? Love cures all, and uh, it really does. And um, time ticks one way. Time ticks one day. One Tell way. Me, one way. Tell me more about that. Uh, I was listening to Cher. And all I kept hearing her say was, uh, if I could turn back time. And she's not singing that. That's not Cher singing, that's Cher soul singing. And I can understand that. You have to live a certain life to understand those words and how important and how strong they are. You know, uh, any woman that's ever tried to love me, I've damaged anything ever How lost, so? I've destroyed, or anything I've ever loved, I've lost. Why? Anything that ever loved me, I've damaged. It's just collateral. I don't know. Maybe it's because of who I was. All the women that I had in my life were good women. All the women I met at escorts, prostitutes, they were all good women. They were all perfect wives. It's just that we met at the wrong times in our lives and under certain circumstances. My uncle killed a lot of people in Vietnam. And I used the answer that he always used. When people asked me about the questions, I said, it was the right thing to do at the time. You had to have been there to understand. So, so you say I you damage these women. How, how, explain to us what you mean by damaged. Well, the ones, other than a couple of them, like the one I explained to you that lives in the $11 million house now, okay. with the uh, man that has no idea about her past, the rest of them are not married. Um, it affects how you see things from now on. When I, when I see people, I see angles. Uh, it's not that you don't let your guard down, your armor becomes your skin. And it's just a part of who you are. You know, when I walk into a bank, I don't stand in line, I count the cameras and exits. And I don't do it on purpose. You know, when I, when I meet a woman, I see her eyes, I can listen to her language, and I can tell at what age that she was tampered with by the way she refers to her body parts. Like she'll be talking like an adult and then she'll say, I have to tinkle. Or he touched me in my no-no area. Or I told him, don't touch my coochie or whatever. You were 15. You over here were nine. Uh, the way you combat everything I say, yours was an authority figure, so probably a friend of the family. You, you have this, we need, I can do that so fast within 10 seconds of meeting someone and I shouldn't be able to do that. 
you know. So it affects you. It affects me. Like I gave one interview and I was talking about how it takes a toll on you emotionally overall and it basically destroys you for any normalcy when it comes to relationships. And the interviewer asked me, do you feel guilty about doing that to women? I said, oh, you thought I was talking about them? No, I did that to myself a long way without knowing. I too suffered the same damage that they did. We just all suffered with smiles and a lot of money and a lot of fun, but it came at a price. You don't know how expensive the price is until you stop. You, it's like, that's why it's called post-traumatic syndrome. Uh, people always concentrate on the word traumatic. No, 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 no. Concentrate on the word post. You're not afraid in Vietnam while bullets are flying at you. You don't have time to cry. You're moving at the speed of light with your instincts. It's only after, when you look back, when I was 41 and I was in the hole at Chino State Prison, I was 42, in the hole at Chino State Prison, and your life flashes before you slowly and you look back and go, what have I done? This is so, so you hadn't done any military service, have you? No. Okay, but, but you kind of make the analogy between a different type of war zone and the effects of it? Uh, because the military, like I asked my uncle, I said, how long were you in Vietnam? He said, three years. I said, um, how long were you in combat? He said, 11 months. Then they transfer you. That's as long as they put you in active combat. But it was really intense. I said, I've been in active combat since I was 13. He wasn't shot in Vietnam. I've been shot twice. And it was a 30-year Vietnam. It's constant, constantly going. While he was in Vietnam, he went to Bordellos. I opened Bordellos while I was in my uh, so-called thing, but it's, it just becomes a part of your life. Everyone you know is, all you know is mobsters and even the people you deal with in the sex trade. It's not just at a bottom level, you're dealing with Larry Flint, you're dealing with Hugh Hefner, you're dealing with Vivid and distributors of all kinds of, uh, well, I came after the VHS era, I was in the DVD era, but okay. every it seems so normal. You go into a warehouse, there's 200 workers in there, uh, forming dildos at Doc Johnson's and you're shipping them over here. The, the entire world I lived in had something to do with the shadow world, either on the outskirts or deep in the middle of it. I, the, shadow, the shadow, the shadow world, which you had talked yeah. about in our first meeting. So the issue I have is that when somebody enlists in the military and they are deployed to a combat zone or just any any uh, armed forces position, it's to protect the American people. It's to protect our country. What contribution have you made? And this is the hard question. And I told you this was going to be hard. I was gonna ask you some probing questions and you were gracious enough to say, let's go. So what contribution, and this is where I have a little bit of trouble with it, okay? Uh, what contribution have you made to society with the field of work you're in? I made a lot of men and women smile. I made a lot of men and women money who necessarily would not have made money. I made um, women who were, some of them were functionally retarded. I made them six figures. They would have had jobs if it weren't for me. And a lot of women who were already in the sex trade, okay. they would be dead if it weren't for me. Because they were with me, certain people treated them a certain way. Those things, a lot of things didn't happen on my watch because of my name, and they knew that there would be immediate retribution behind that. So, oh, but into outside society, 
We didn't make contributions to that world. We took from that world. That world rejected us long before we started doing things to it. That's how we became who we are. You know, trauma made Batman. Trauma also made the Joker. Outside society created Batman. Outside society also created the Joker. Now, who they were inside in their core determined which cape they put on and which side they fought on. But rest assured, Batman is just as mentally deranged <laughs> as the Joker is. You know, but neither, neither can function in what we call society. That's why one lives in a cave, even though he's a billionaire. He's not well. He's still mourning his parents. That was traumatic for him. And it caused a split in his psyche to where he created an alter ego. So did the Joker. And oh, you refer a lot and you identify a lot with with movies and characters. Well, I, 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 own, I, I haven't owned a television really in like 12 years. I don't watch TV. And uh, I have about 100 DVDs that I watch over and over and over and over again. So they become teaching and study tools or something like that because I can relate to a lot of stuff that I see in certain movies. Okay. You know, and it, and it really hits me. It really hits me hard. I feel like okay, I'm not the only one, you know, so. How did, I, how did you survive when you were in prison, when you were incarcerated? How did you survive? I want to say, I don't know. Um, my, in one assassination attempt, my throat was cut, but he was an amateur. He missed my jugular. He was dead seven days later. And uh, who, ki who killed him? Oh, you know, I can't say. Right. Okay. You're right. I'm sorry. Yeah, I've got a, I've got to censor myself a little bit too here. It's okay. I won't slip. Believe me. But but you said it was an an assassination attempt. Yeah, my, so my name somebody, is on the paper. Say that again. I interrupted you, Mickey. Once your name is on a certain paper, they say you've been marked. So I knew something was coming. Okay. I just didn't know when, and I was asleep at the time. Another time I was asleep at a halfway house. I was after prison for something I did at a previous prison, which is against the rules because prison is supposed to stay in prison. When we get out, everybody's supposed to say, all bets are off, we all go home to our families and we try to put together the time we lost. But that wasn't the case because of uh, allegedly um, two very important people who weren't supposed to be touched got touched. So when I was out and I got stabbed in the face, I still have those 11 stitches in my mouth and four on the outside, so 15 total. So it causes me to have a slight speech impediment. I have, I have a sharp pain every word I say. But so that was, was that from the most recent assassination attempt, that stabbing yeah. in your face area? So why, why aren't you still in prison? How do you keep getting I out? You served, I served your my time. time. Yeah. They okay. can't keep me in there once I serve my time, but once he stabbed me, I couldn't mention it. I told him at the halfway house I fell. I fell. I told him I rolled out of bed and fell five feet on a nail that was sticking up, which is impossible. But if I had told them what happened on parole, the fact that I had any police involvement, I could end up going back for 18 months. And I didn't want to go back, especially since I was totally out of the life. I was trying mm -hmm. to do my books and write and get it back together because I started doing that before I went in. I didn't catch these cases, these last two cases, I didn't catch in the life. I wasn't in the life when I caught my last case. I was helping someone. So when were you, when were you recently released? I think 2017. So before the pandemic? Oh yeah. 
Okay. I, I have a question. During the pandemic, uh, how is the sex trade affected? That was just something I was like, oh my gosh, I have to ask about that. Oh, you adjust. Uh, sex, the sex trade hasn't been affected in millions of years since procreation was invented, but it adjusts is what it does. So it went off the street. Well, I haven't been on the street in a long time. I mean, good God, over 20 years, but 20 years ago, because as I started to move up, I left that behind because as I started to move up, I put them in safer positions. You're not safe on the street. If you're in a house with six women and it's a five, six bedroom house and you have security at the front door and I'm in one of the rooms with, you know, a lot of people, no one's gonna bother you. No one's gonna hurt you here. And he's probably gonna pay you double just to make sure he walks out of here okay. And he's gonna treat you with the utmost respect. So why go back to the street after that if I can offer you this? So, but it changed during the pandemic from what I heard from a lot of ladies that um, they had to start doing, but see, thank goodness for the internet. They went webcam. They started using their services almost like a Grubhub type thing. Hmm. And they wore their mask and tried to do as best they could. Other than that, what I understand, because I keep my ear to the streets always, even from Mexico, that it has- You're, you're in Mexico now, not LA. Okay, right. all right. And um, they're still out there. They don't care. It's like AIDS didn't affect the sex industry. Not one, one bit. Not A one bit. AIDS did not? No, no okay. in the 80s when AIDS came, it didn't slow it down. Population increased, not decreased. Okay. People look, I'll put it like this. When Vietnam was going on, my uncle still found time at least twice a week to go have sex with one of the uh, Vietnamese prostitutes. Now, it could have been a setup. Some of the soldiers got killed that way, but it mm -hmm. didn't slow down the fact that they still went. That's how strong sex is. So you have been shot at. You have been stabbed. Have you ever had any? Twice. You've been <laughs> shot twice. Have yeah. you ever had any brain injuries? Uh, other than the fact I was born with bipolar disorder, I flipped over in a Jeep seven times, fell asleep driving. Come, just I, I, I usually sleep maybe about 10 hours a week. I tell people I sleep from every 48 to 72 hours. I get maybe five or six hours in. And eventually your body crashes. And I was driving back from Compton, and I was just wide awake. And the next thing I know, I woke up upside down. And no, I woke up flipping and I counted it out loud. So I know how many times I flipped and it was seven. And I had some injury from here to here. It was some nerve from back here behind my ear that went to right to the edge of my shoulder. And when I said that to my doctor, he explained to me which nerve that was. And for about a year, I stuttered after that. And I okay. forgot small things like how to tie my shoes. And that went away. But Concussions. Yeah, it could have been. I boxed for a little while uh, uh, growing up. Okay. I played one year of football. I was in high school six years, 9, 10, okay. 11, 11, 12, and 12. Okay. But, uh, I would say that's about it. The biggest change to my, because I, I had a photographic memory. I can remember things I said maybe at seven. And after that Jeep incident, my memory was maybe 30 minutes long for a long time. I'm getting a little bit of it back. That's why I, I remember things in spurts now, but. How about your emotion after the Jeep accident with the rollovers? Did your emotion change? Did you find that it was more difficult to control your emotions? No. Okay. Not at all. 
It, it didn't change anything. I just crawled out at the bottom and I stepped. I, I didn't realize that I flipped over so many times that my shoes ended up in the way in the back. I thought I had them on my feet. Mm. So when I crawled out, I stepped on a cluster of glass. And that woke me up big time and I had to go to the hospital to get the glass taken out. I didn't go to the hospital that night because I figured I was okay. You know, I said, you know, I'm not used to going to hospitals or things like that. I just picked, okay, I'm fine. And, Do you have your seatbelt on? Yes. Probably saved you. So I, I want to talk about the sex trafficking because that, that's really something um, that is very dark and does a lot of damage because you're dealing with non-consensual females and males. Talk right. to me about your involvement in that. And I'm going to well, remain as judgment-free as I possibly can on that. I'm going to remain very anonymous. Okay. <laughs> and no, I respect that. Mm. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. When you talk about the sex trade, that encompasses everything from burlesque shows in Vegas to literally people being snatched off the street and thrown in vans. It's okay. all connected one way or another. It's like if, 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 if you ask Magic Johnson or, oh God, I'm dating myself, aging myself. If you ask LeBron James, where does he work? He'll say for the NBA. But so does the guy sweeping the floor. I work for the NBA too. I might give out popcorn. The guy in the parking lot works for the NBA, but so does the general manager. It's all one organization. It just depends on where you are in the stadium that determines how much risk you take. You know, the press guy at the boxing match, he's in boxing. So is the promoter, so is the trainer, but the guy in the ring is the one getting hit. So he has different stories to tell than the guy who's sitting there who does the writing for the Times Magazine or things like that. But they're both in the boxing business. So when you talk about hardcore trafficking, I told um, Najil that I've known only like four hardcore trafficking organizations and none of them were from the US. And my biggest run-in was the Egyptians. And I met them at the mosque a long time ago, fourth in Vermont, you know, and they cornered me. Cause yes, I live in oxymoronic paradox type life. So I'm doing all of this and the other, but still trying to pray sometimes. And they cornered me hmm. and they said, uh, we hear the truth pimp. Now, for them to corner me like that, I just assumed they were just gonna kill me right there. So I said, it depends who's asking, what, what do you mean by that? Okay. I said, no, no, I wanna talk to you. I said, you have girls. I said, yeah. So we negotiated and he said, I'll give you 50,000 per girl. I take them to Egypt. I said, okay, what do I care? I said, when do they come back? How long are they gonna be there? Because I used to send guys when I was in the porn industry to Japan. And the way the Japanese used to shoot was, because they would shoot a lot of black guys with Japanese girls, but they only shot for 30 days, but you're going to shoot about 12 hours a day. Okay, and again, when you say shot or shoot, you're talking camera. about a movie camera or movie, pornography, movie not, okay. not pornography. Okay. But they always come back in 30 days, but they make about forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000, which is not that much. That's about $1,200, $1,300 a day. So you're basically making about $100 an hour, but they don't see it like that. They see it as one big $50,000 check they get when they come back. So, and I would take mine off the top and things like that because I was a manager of adult entertainers. Okay. So I had a different type of relationship with the porn as opposed to the houses, as opposed to this. It, 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 it varies. He said, um, and he just got quiet and he said, I'll give you 80 per girl. And I just kept saying, 
50 is fine. I don't know why you keep going up in price, but when do they come back? And he just kept quiet. And I said, okay, we'll talk about it some other time. I said, let me go talk to the girl. Because I realized that if I didn't give the right answer, I probably wouldn't have walked out of that corner. So I learned from the streets early. Because by that time, I've been in the streets 20 years. I started this at 13. So I'm like, that sounds like a good deal. We'll be fair. We'll do 60 per girl. And I said, uh, I can get you at least 10. That was just to get out. So I told the girls and I told them and they were very excited about going. I said, do you understand you're not coming back? You know what that means, right? And I tried to explain to them that this is kind of a one way trip and you're never going to come back. What does that and mean that you won't come back? What happens when they get there? Well, I can tell you what happens deeply in the sex trade. They usually like the movie Taken, they get sold to someone and they get sold and sold and sold. And when they can't use them anymore, I know of cases where, I know of cases in South America where your kidneys can go for anywhere from 50 to 80,000 each, wholesale about 30. So they usually just finish you. In other cases, they usually put a needle, they finish you. They can't let you leave like this, they finish you. And I explained that to all of them. Do you know three still wanted to go? Three still wanted to go. And they are said, they, are they in their, are, are they under the influence of drugs? Are they disabled when they make these decisions? No, they're just, sometimes you have to understand that type of mindset. Well, I'm trying. That's why I'm asking you these questions is I, I'm trying to, to sacrifice themselves for the money up front in order to give their families and never return. And I said, I'm not gonna let you go. I was just explaining to you, cause if I'm speaking on your behalf and I say, no, as a manager, I'm gonna come back and tell you, they offered you a deal over at Netflix, but they only wanted to give you 50 grand. I told them, no, I told them the right thing, didn't I? Do you know, three of them still wanted to go. I said, you know, you're not gonna come back a lot. They said, so. So is this still going on today? Oh, this has been going on for hundreds of years and will never stop. Okay. And in, in these United States? Yeah. And that's why I call it shadow because it exists in the daytime. Like I told uh, the woman in the interview that you saw. Mariana with National Geographic. Yeah. yeah. I said, yeah. you don't know what you're looking at. I said, in the daytime, it's even more women out here. But they want, I said, this is the, back, the thing that we do. At nighttime, they'll be naked. You'll be able to pick them out. In the daytime, they're fully clothed. They'll be pushing baby strollers down the same street. They have on jeans. They might have a, a Burger King cup because it's Burger King right there on the, one of the main drags. I said, but if you look into the stroller, it's a teddy bear in that stroller. It could be a gun in that stroller. A lot of these women carry guns. I said, it's no baby in the stroller. I said, see that woman on the bus stop in the daytime? You're going to see bus after bus pass by. She's not going to move. It's just that they do it differently in the daytime. I know what I'm looking at. I said, I can tell you which ones have pimps. I can tell you She's a madam, she's controlling those girls. I said, see how she's standing right there? But her eyes keep on from boom, 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 boom. And all the way they look up, I said, those are her girls. And, and you were okay with this at that yeah. time in your life? Um, yeah, I'm still okay with it now. I just don't participate. I have no problem. Okay, with okay, I gotta stop you there. And I told <laughs> you I'd be doing this. I'm okay with it. I just don't participate in it. No. What is the youngest woman or man, youngest girl or boy that you're aware of that was sold? Uh, what do you mean sold? Like sold as in trafficked or rented? 
Wow. Uh, well, you just blew my mind. Sold or rented? Answer uh, both. Te teach us. Uh, the youngest I know of were the stories that the ladies told me about themselves. One chick, um, her mother was a stripper. Her father was a drug dealer. He was murdered in front of her and her mother. She said, we lived in a very big house because he married her as a stripper, but she didn't have to strip when she married him. He was a lot older. There was a knock at the door. She said, my father opened it. Next thing I know, he flew over the couch. It was with a shotgun. The guy ran. Could have easily killed her and her mother. Or her mother had to go back to stripping slash prostituting. And uh, when the girl turned 14, the man that she got after that, who was having sex with her as a little girl, as a young girl, when the mother found out, she put the little girl out, saw her as competition. She was 14. And she said, I have to sleep outside. And I got this idea to get some cleaning products. And she said, I would go door to door saying, do you need any chores, clean up, this, that, and the other. And she said, I was doing okay. And I went to a man's door and she said he was like 60 and he explained that he lives alone, his wife died. He would let her clean up and stay there a couple of days. He said, I'll let you live here permanently if uh, X, Y, and Z. And she made that deal with him. And she said, after I left his house at around 16, I never looked back. And uh, she was telling me the story. I was in my early 20s. She was in her 40s at that time. Okay. So I know of women who have started selling them. So everything happens. I don't care if it's a man and gangs. Well, I saw a lot of that when I was in Thailand, in Bangkok. I saw what I was later told, fathers pimping their sons and daughters on corners. Yeah. I had, it was a real, I mean, awakening. And it, it was something that I, I think helped me as a clinical psychologist, especially with the understanding of human sexuality and behavior. Uh, there was live sex on stages in the clubs. There were brother and sisters on the stage having sexual intercourse and, and so on. It gets more graphic. That happens here too in the US. They're called after hours spots. Those are after hours. That was my next question yeah. here in the United States. Um, I've had the privilege of working with some nurses in the hospital that were actually on the team that would do the rape assessments for women in general or young men and boys in general and men in general too. Let me correct myself on that. But also who had been found or who were trying to leave whatever group they were with who were being sex trafficked. And then working in the ER, we were taught what to look for, as well as girls and boys and men and women coming in. I guess I, so there, that's never going to stop is what I'm hearing you say. It's something that goes on. It's global. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's not only global, it's more local than you think. More I'm local. Sure. Well, yeah. I'm sure it happens at least on every block in every city especially rural areas in this country. It's at least one of I remember T.D. Jakes, the, the reverend, he says statistically one out of every three American women have been raped or molested before they were 18. He said before 18, I'm not counting the ones that are 30 and 40. So when he gave his women's conference, it's like 10,000 women there. He said, I want you guys to turn around and go, one, two, you. One, two, you. One, two, you. you. And those are the ones who report it. I, I was very privileged to have a mentor, Dr. Ronnie Priest, and he still remains my mentor that I had in my graduate work at, in special populations. And one of the things he talked about 
and the population he worked with were the sexually victimized and the incidents of just incest in this country with girls and boys starting so young uh, was just mind-blowing at that time. What do you think it is? Why do you think this is so prevalent in our country, the United States of America, but around the world? Why do you think this, again, is such a prevalent thing? Maybe it's the strength of the desire. And it's a question of availability. I mean, okay. why would somebody like Bill Clinton waste his time with Monica Lewinsky? She's there. Why would you do that to your niece? She's there. That, that's your reason? That's his reason. She's there. Why did that woman do that to me? I was there. It could have been the guy, it could have been the guy next door. It wasn't because I was special or cute. I was available. That's it. If she had walked down the street with another boy, that's who would have been in the house. It was availability. Is there a difference between availability and actually kidnapping somebody off oh, God, the streets? Yeah. Yes, what? tell us about that. A crime of opportunity. If it was uh, kidnapping someone off the street, someone being marked, there's nothing you can do about that. Someone being marked. marked, what does that right. mean? That Tagged, that, marked? Uh, someone's been watching you for a week. You, if someone has set up perimeters for weeks. Someone has, uh, what do you call it? Accomplices. I can tell you a story that I don't mind telling you because I've already told this on YouTube on my channel, so okay. I don't mind telling it. Um, do you, are you familiar with an actress named Eva Marcel? Say the name again. There was a little cutout. She's an there. actress. Her name is Eva Marcel. I am not. No. Okay, I can tell you that story. She was 15 years old when I was 25. I drove a green Cadillac and I went to see a friend. And I saw her and I said, wow, that girl is so pretty. And I was talking to him and he said, well, she's only 15 years old. And I said, no, she, I said something really stupid. I said, no, she's not. She couldn't be. Look how tall she is. Because she was flanked by two girls who were, out, I guess they were the same age. They were all 15. I was 25. Mm. And I said, I'm going to leave with that girl. And he said, we don't, we don't do that over here. You know, you, you're going to, so it started an argument. Now in my trunk at the time, I'm not going to get into details. In my trunk at the time, I always had duct tape, um, handcuffs, rope, roof and all, anything that I needed to complete the jobs that I was doing. I was primarily dealing with Russians at the time. Okay, so, I got to stop you though. So the roof and all, the date, the date drug, right? The yeah. date rape drug. So were you using this on women and men that you were going to rent or sell? Oh, I can't answer things like that. I, as far as I can go is, these were what you call tools of the trade. I also had a 357 in the car. I had a sawed-off shotgun. It never knows what type of activity I was going to be involved in from hour to hour. I had three houses going on. I had 12 girls working for me in the houses. So this is before pornography. This is years I, before. I know, but I what's, what's going through my mind is that you're, you're alive and well. You're doing well. And what happens to these men and women that navigate in the shadows or that are finished, like you said, fin finished with regards to ending their life, okay? So how do you feel about that? Nothing. Okay. Nothing. I mean, that's just part of, you have to understand, it's like asking a mobster, like, um, what was his name? Albert Anastasia, who personally killed 
little over 50 men and ordered the deaths of hundreds more. He's in court laughing. How do you feel? I don't feel anything. This is what I do. They call him the Mad Hatter, the uh, Lord High Executioner for a reason. That's what he does. He executes. He doesn't feel anything. No more than someone working the gas chamber at San Quentin. Do you cry after you? No. Do you feel any kind of way you put the needle in his arm? No. Does that cop feel bad who shot that kid? No, he has a he has a homicide shooting like every month. He does not. That's what he does. He's a policeman. He works his SWAT. Okay, but but I've got no. to say that I work with a lot of law enforcement and and first responders and most of them do feel and when you and i talked during our first meeting especially when you were talking about relationships with women or your son there wasn't an emotion there was an emotional response i don't think you were gaming me with that i don't think you were faking that emotion i don't oh, think no, you were manipulating me i think that was i think that was you i could be wrong but i want to step back now so you you, we were talking about the difference between somebody that was snatched off the streets as opposed to somebody, let's say, like a runaway or a different situation. It are men and women who engage in sexual acts with minors, are they pedophiles? Of course, that's the very definition of the word. And actually okay. in the sex trade, we're extremely anti-pedophile. If it weren't for pedophiles, it wouldn't be a sex trade because these people, we weren't born this way. We were made this way by so-called good people that we were trusted to be with. So you don't see, like when, when, when they did the big Me Too thing, you don't see too many pornographers being arrested. You don't see too many drug dealers being arrested. You see priests, you see policemen, you see firemen, you see Boy Scout leaders. Well, you, you see individuals that have access or work access. within disciplines that have access to kids. No, they had the desire. They were pedophiles before they became Boy Scout leaders, before they became high school uh, gym teachers. Yeah. They went into those fields because of the access. They already yes. had those screws. You're right. Very yeah. Early. yeah. So would, would you say because you were violated, did that increase your urge or attraction for minors under the age of 18 or non-consensual sexual acts I've or, never or selling or renting? Woman. I've never been with anyone under age unless I was okay. under age. Uh, I was okay. with a 10-year-old girl. Hell, I was nine. And it was her idea. I mean, the only underage girls I've ever had sex with was when I was underage. What it did was increase my attraction to older women. And I ended up getting married at the age of 28 to a 40-year-old porn star. So okay. my women have always been older because my introduction introduction to sex was older. My ex-wife is uh, five foot eleven. The ex-woman that I just broke up with after a seventeen relationship, she's six foot two. My ex-girlfriend is six one because I'm so used to looking up to when my introduction to sex was to look up to a woman. All of my girlfriends have been at least six feet. I'm five, but, seven. But, but and that's a, a physical thing. But the way you've navigated life has been very much with women under your thumb. Very much. A lot of people would say misogynistic or objectification, or to use them as tools, you know, for profit. And I'm, See, that, I, I'm again, I'm just putting be, it out there. No, that would be the person from the outside looking in that doesn't understand. These okay. women are objectified, they're the center of attention. 
you don't push somebody into porn. You know, when I used to hold porn auditions, I would have a line of at least 40 women outside, and every day it would be like 30 or 40. When I came outside and said no more auditions, they would get angry. They would say, when do you open again? How I've been standing here too. You don't have to advertise. I used to tell people I had to beat them off with a stick. I would tell them, I only have four houses. I have about 12 or 13 rooms. I have two women in each room. I can't take any more people. They would get so angry with me. Well, when you do, let me know, because I got like four girls that's really into such and such, and we're working on my part. See, this is voluntary. People from the outside looking in, a lot of times women play the victim role that's in that industry. They say, um, um, because they, they work on your sympathies and things like that. No, I don't know anybody, uh, male or female, who was forced into the sex trade. I used to get stopped. I'd be somewhere eating a cheeseburger. Aren't you Mickey Royal? I want you to introduce you to my niece. She's 21. Turn around. Even today, does that happen? Yes, but those people already know me from the past. Not be, they're not new people. There would be people, in the, women in their 40s, that I was dealing with when they were 19 and 20, and I was in like my mid-20s, we kind of grew up, and they would introduce me now to their nieces, but they're trying to put their nieces on OnlyFans. They're trying to do uh, the webcam, and they'll call me and say, Mick, Mick, what kind of camera should I get? I'm thinking, blah, blah, blah is what I use, but you know, that was a long time ago during the mini DV era. Everything's digital, call such and such. She still does movies. Okay. Mick, Mick, do you think she should wear like hot pink or such and such? Because I bought her this hot pink. No. It, it's a almost like a family business. It's okay. not looked at the way the outsiders look at it. So if you had a daughter, we'll have to say a daughter who survived because mm -hmm. you lost your daughter. How would you feel if she decided to have a life like the life you have led? How would you feel about that? Um, if in my book, Along for the Ride and the Dedications, I say to my son, when you read these things, know that your father did all of these things to ensure that your future will never be his past. Or I, I put it where my past will never be your future. So you don't have to do that. Sugar Ray Leonard boxed. He got beat, he got detached his retina, so his son would never have to. His son was a model at one time. He said, son, you don't ever have to lace up gloves and get hit in your face 100 times around for 15 rounds. He said, I'm getting hit in the face 1,400 times tonight so that no one ever has to touch your face. See, sacrifice is only made by one person. So if I do this, like Paris Jackson and Michael Jackson's children, they don't ever have to moonwalk on that stage. They don't have to be seven years old going on world tours missing their childhood because daddy did that already but they lost their dad in a very sad way but what do you say to your son today what's your relationship with your son like today mickey great yeah okay he um i mean i sent him to private schools and we were always very very close i spent as much time with him as i could maybe every other day it's just that he used to live with me at one time, but then I came home and there was a particular porn star named Kira. And I remember she had an all white, she had very big breasts. My son was, you gotta understand, my son graduated from high school when he was 15 doing statistics. He was tutoring college kids when he was like 11 or 12. He was Smart, a young, young man, okay. And when she was leaning up, he, she was, he was asking her how to do long division. Now, if you know my son, he's been doing long division since he was four. And I saw her breast sitting on his head, leaning, doing it. When I came in, I said, no, this is not going to happen. And I, I knew that he was doing that on purpose. So the next day I told his mother, I said, look, he can stay with me some nights during the week, but it has to be in advance where I can keep everybody out of here. I said, I can't have him. This is not going to work this way. 
because he's not going to go down the same path that I went down. I'm not going to have him around scantily clad and certain dressed women. When it comes to children, I'm extremely conservative because I didn't have a childhood, so I try to make sure everyone else has one. You know, I tell people, uh, growing up is overrated, you know. Get me sure when you're 30. It's really overrated because I've been an adult since I was 8, 9, 10. And I said, I can tell you, it's overrated. It's not, it, it's not all as cracked up as it is. I'd much rather be eating cotton candy and on a roller coaster. Did than you, well, and, and from what we discussed in our first meeting, I mean, your childhood, free from any kind of violence or crime or, you know, just, a, just oppression of any kind was, was five and, and younger. Because yeah. then you had that assault and arrest at the age of five with the daycare. And for, for the audience who was not aware of what happened to Mickey at that age, you can listen to our first interview. Moving forward, you're in Mexico. Is there a reason why you're living in Mexico and not America? Uh, you ever see a movie called Pulp Fiction? Many, many years ago. I don't remember a whole lot of it. Um, Marcella said, you have to be gone because you lost all your LA privileges. I think I kind of burnt out the United okay. States and lost all my United States privileges. Um, are you wanted? Are, are no, you, is there a I wouldn't warrant? Tell you I, I wouldn't tell you where I was. I wouldn't have a locator if I were okay. wanted. Uh, okay. I actually have an enhanced driver's license with a chip in it so everyone knows exactly where I am. It's no secret. But it's like, if I slip up in the U.S. again, I'll be in prison for life, primarily California. And... It's too easy to slip up. In California, especially if I go around old crowd, I'm one shoulder bump away mm. from someone shooting me. I'm one shoulder bump away from shooting someone. It's very intense and I don't have the stomach for those things anymore. I'm not the same person. I changed at age 40, 41. I told you my last prison stint was helping someone, you know, and trying to save someone's life. I just went a little overboard, but I still think my heart was in the right place. I feel good about it. And for the first time in my life, I did something bad for the right reason, with nothing to gain, because I have this trigger about bullies. See, molestation, rape, uh, those are just bullying. It's just that you chose to have sex. It's just a term of bullying. It's like big kids taking shoes and stuff from little kids, which is what happened all the time when I was growing up. I had to change the way I went to school. I had to carry a steak knife when I was in the fourth grade because I just wanted to go to school and come home. Try learning in that environment. I had to go down a different street. I hated walking past the high school kids because they tried to take stuff from me. I'm like, you can't fit my shoes anyway. Why do you want to take them? Because you can. So I realized that I can stick you in the stomach with this thing because I can. Do you think you ever bullied the people that uh, worked for you? No. Okay. In fact, I was actually too nice. Uh, I stood on what I said. I told you I never raised my hand, but I never repeated myself, and I never raised my voice either. So when I spoke, whatever I said was obeyed then and there because it was a tiny cog in a grand design. See, if you don't finish this movie right now, I can't get it to the editor at eight o'clock and then I can't have it sitting on someone's shelf by Wednesday. So all of this whole line of people, warehouses, um, manufacturers, distributors, executive producers, no one gets paid because you're having a mental breakdown right now. That's not gonna work. You're gonna upset a, a lot of people along this line. So when I spoke, people listened and obeyed. It never was a question of I had to repeat myself. So you had a very, very big life, if you will, 
Uh, where are you today? You're in Mexico. Do you miss the United States? Do you miss America? No, no, okay. Where um, your I'm life sounds? Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm happy to be here, but I've been all over the world. I mean, I've I used to hang out in Sao Paulo, Brazil. You know, I had a little business down there. Things I was doing, I can't talk about, and that was in my okay. 20s. Uh, but here, I live on the beach. Um, most exciting thing in my life right now is that spicy guacamole I, get, guacamole I get from this taco stand. I always tell the lady, no spicy. All she hears is spicy. So each time I get it, I get in the car, I'm like, God dang it, because spicy food makes my hair sweat. That's about the most exciting thing that I do now. I write, I have all this information, and I have all these stories, so I have to get it out. But you're each alone. Time. Yes, I am. And how does that feel? It sucks. <laughs> it sucks big time. Um, I told someone I'm in paradise without my princess, so that makes it purgatory. So it's just, to me, it's, I used to tell her one time, this is how much I loved her. I said, if I died and I was gonna go to heaven and they opened the gate, I wouldn't walk in. Cause I said, heaven without her is just a well-lit hell. I would just stand here and wait. And that's, and we're talking her. about the love of your life. Yes, the the one I just split with after seventeen years. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what is what does love feel like to you? Freedom. What does love with a woman feel like to you? Freedom. And I've what is love with that one woman? And what does love for your son feel like to you? I never really see us as separate. I see him as a new sheet of paper where I can correct all the mistakes that I made. People call us Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. And I, maybe the dark side was okay for me. You would have had to have been there at the time for my survival. I said, but my son never needed that. He doesn't need that. I said, son, if anyone ever asked you to join a gang, I said, when he's early, I said, tell them they have to ask me. And they won't ask anyone else after that. I said, your father's connected. I said, you don't do that. You go to school and you be everything that I wanted to be but couldn't become. And I would stand at your graduation and applaud, which I did. And I said, I would be so proud. Because I remember one time, his mother's a teacher. She's actually a doctor now. She has a PhD. And it's what you call it, uh, when he was staying with me for a weekend, and he asked me how to help, to help him on his trigonometry. And I said, no. And he said, you're just like my mother. She doesn't help me because she wants me to learn everything on my own. I said, your mother wants you to learn anything on your own. I said, no, because I don't know how to do it, son. My math was just called math. I said, son, I never got that far in school. I don't know how to do those things. I just like watching you do them. I said, when <laughs> Now, the, the, we ended the last meeting we had with you talking about the best day of your life and mm. the woman you were with. Is that the mother of your son? No, that's okay. the mother of the daughter I lost. Okay, of the daughter yeah. you lost. And I'm so sorry for that loss. Moving forward, where do you see yourself, Mickey? What do you mean where I see myself? What do you mean? What do you see yourself doing? Anything different than what you're doing now or you I because you're a, you haven't you could possibly have another fifty years ahead of you. You're forty nine right tomorrow, which is yes, Thanksgiving. Yeah. So I mean they're keeping us alive longer and longer. But I know. But um, I, I wanted to, when I read that Agatha Christie wrote 100 books, I said, I want to live long enough to write 101. I said, uh, okay. writing gives me 
more pleasure than anything I've ever done. And that's what I want to do. I, I used to joke about it. I said, I see myself. I used to tell the woman I loved, I said, you know how this story ends, don't you? And she said, what? I said, it ends with me alone, living with the cat, with an old typewriter in front of me, writing and telling them about 80, and they're gonna find me a week after I'm dead, slumped over that, over that uh, typewriter with a note that says, I'm having a heart attack, please feed my cat. <laughs> okay, do you, do you have pets? Well, my only, I've had cats along the way, but the cat that I was really attached to, that was a long time ago, well, she has to be dead by now, her name was Sassy. That was, uh, last time I saw her was 2010, so it's 2021, I don't think she's still alive, but I have pictures and to me she is. So since I didn't see her die, she's still alive. That's sassy. So your greatest contribution to society in your lifetime, we're going to project, we can go back or move forward. Mm -hmm. What do you believe or what do you foresee your biggest contribution to humankind as being? Books and my movies. I'm very proud of the hundreds okay. of adult films that I've produced and directed. And I'm very proud of the books I write. They're almost therapeutic to me. The information is accurate and the stories, I put pictures in them, I use real names. That's not too bright, but I've never been accused of that. But yeah, I think that would be my contribution. And the things I talk about as far as love, people don't understand what type of love I'm talking about. I said it can cure all, it can cure PTSD. It can take away your anger. It can take away your rage. I've seen it happen to me. It turned a narcissistic sadist who only felt joy in inflicting extreme pain to an empath who feels guilt when he plucks a flower because it's alive. See, love transformed me into that. And Pure yet love. you're alone. And yet yeah. you're alone. But see, I know that it exists. See, I, I, I didn't understand what Shakespeare meant when he said it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. I said, that's stupid because you have to go through heartbreak. But I understand it now at 49. See, I've loved and lost. I've lost a lot. But I can bear witness that it exists and it does cure. This is a cure-all bottle. I just dropped it. Don't drop yours. Mine any any regrets to date in your life, Mickey? Only one. The woman. See, here you go. You're doing it again. Uh, I'm doing it again. What's going you, on? You always make my eyes like, like you know, mess up. Uh, yeah. The moment I fell in love with that woman, I should have walked away then. I had tons of money. I should have grabbed her by her arm. And we should have just flown away and not looked back. And I didn't. At the moment she fell in love with me, and at the moment, well, she was already in love with me, but at the moment I fell in love with her, it hit me like a ton of bricks when I fell in love with her. And I never said those words to anybody. And I said it every day since then. Even when I was in prison, I wrote her every day. And she wrote me at least three times a week. And I said it every day. Even I even said it the last day I saw her. Uh, First time I was able to say that, I should have taken everything, grabbed her by the hand and walked away. And we could have just, oh God, we were just gonna live on a cruise ship, 
people used to call us heart to heart, Jonathan and Jennifer, and well, they called us Joker and Harley too, that's when we were bad, but we were just going to live on a cruise ship and just live this fantasy life, and I had tons of money, and we were just going to like sip mimosas and eat fruit with chopsticks <laughs> for the rest of our lives, and I chose not to go through that door because I couldn't assassinate my ego. So and for the first time since the age of five, you were vulnerable. With her? Yes. Oh, God, yes. Oh, everyone okay. knew it. Uh, I, 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 I couldn't know. Would you like to know when I fell in love with her? Would you like to hear this story? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Say it again. I said, would you like to hear the story of how I fell in love with her? Of course. Okay. Uh, she had been working for me for a while. She, I was managing her adult film career. And that's when she said, you know, we, once we became a couple, I still was a pimp. I still was a pornographer. She was still doing porn movies. I was directing most of her films. But like I told you, it's a lot of husbands and wives in the porn industry and stuff. And she said, you know, you gross a lot of money. I'm looking at your receipts in your stuff, but she said, but you don't net a lot of money. She said, you might be smart to take a bookkeeping or accounting course. And she said, I'll take it with you. I said, okay. So we signed up at LABC, Los Angeles Valley College. And uh, we, uh, I wore regular clothes. I, um, I, I had books, I had a book bag. And um, I, I didn't know what a syllabus was. I didn't know a certain thing, so I, but she had already been to college. So she was leading me around like I was her, her child or little brother. And it was very innocent. And uh, when we, oh, I skipped one part. Okay, let me stop right there. We went to the cafeteria, we sat on the quad. It was like I was in high school all over again, but I had someone who loved me with me. And when I first met her, the first day, I took her to an after hours and she said, I can't go in here. I'm not, I don't want anything. I said, what's wrong? Are you afraid? This is the first day I met her. I said, you afraid? I said, you're afraid of those people. Those people are terrified of me, but you're with me. And I said, take my hand. Don't be afraid. I said, I don't want that any of these bad people ever hurt you again. Because she told me stories about being snatched, being gang raped, things like that. I said, no one will ever hurt you again if you stand next to me. Okay? And she finally took my hand and got out of the car. Well, five years later, we were at Ellie Valley College. And when we got to the, now I'm getting back to the story where I was. And we got to the door and I, I just stopped. I started having like a panic attack. I said, I can't, I can't do this. I can't, I can't go in there. I said, you go in. And I'll stand outside and wait for you. And when you come out, we can go to your house and you can teach me that way. And she took one step in the classroom and she turned around and she said, take my hand, sit next to me. I promise I won't let these good people ever hurt you again. And I started crying and I looked at her and I said, I love you. And I said, and you love me. And she said, yeah, I always have. Is that the and first time you realized that you were in love with each other? Uh, she used to say it to me, and I used to get angry and say, you got the wrong guy. I don't do the love thing. She said, I got the right guy, just at the wrong time in his life. I said, you ever say that again? I'll put you through a wall. Don't you say the L word to me. I don't say it, and I don't let anyone say it to me. So, so again, you let her in, that vulnerability. If you had... I, I didn't let her in. She was so pure of heart 
and just melted the ice around it. Okay. I didn't let her in. She if, broke in and she couldn't get out. She's still in there. If you, know, you had over. one sentence to say to her today, after you said 17 years you were together, did I hear you yeah. correctly? Okay. What would that one sentence be? As as we wrap up, what would that one sentence be? I don't know if I can say anything to her that I haven't said. One thing I could say to her, and I've said this before, I said this last time I saw her, I smiled and I said, if I could turn back time. Okay. That's all. At that moment, I shouldn't even walk into class. I should have just grabbed and ran to the airport and left everything behind and everybody. The houses, everything, cars, everything. You can have it all. She's all I need. If I could turn back time. That's what I always say sometimes when we used to be sitting there with each other because she's only a year younger than me. So she's almost 50 also. And we were looking at each other. We were at this restaurant called Norm's in Inglewood. And uh, we, we were basically saying goodbye. I knew she wasn't coming here with me. I knew this is where we part ways, but we were just smiling and looking at each other. I said, we've known each other a long time. She said, a long time. I said, if I could turn back time. So I want you to hang on with me a few seconds, Mickey. That feeling, that longing, that love. Do you believe that might have been something that the girls and boys and men and women in your life through your discipline, your line of work, were always looking for that acceptance or validation? Yeah, so was I. That's my family. I'm Mickey okay. Royal and they were regarded as, they were called the royal family. You know, and okay. we all, it, it's like, you're special. This is a stage. You're somebody who came from a bunch of nobodies. People respect you. People fear you. People admire you. People envy you. And you came from a house where you were ignored, and now you're on a box cover, and the world knows who you are. But you're at someone. such a high price. Oh, all yeah. right. I want to talk <laughs> about your book. The Pimp okay. Game, okay. and you have a few other books. Can you tell okay. us about those? And okay. uh, I have The Pimp Game, Instructional Guide, and I'll read the back of it because I have it here. And that's a big, that's your number one seller. Yes, it is. Okay. Uh, the former Hollywood king reveals secret techniques with proven results on mastering the art of submission. And look inside the mind of the master as well as a chilling peek into the shadow world. A Modern Parallel Guide to the Prince by Machiavelli. Machiavelli, okay. Yeah. All right, uh, and uh, talk to me about the, or our audience about the children's book. The children's book is called, Oh My Goodness. It was a lady I was trying to date. She used to be, uh, she used to do movies too, and she had left the life, and I saw her 13 years later, and we started talking. And because all of my women have, no matter how innocent our relationship is, whatever, they've been former porn stars or escorts before that, but all primarily for, my ex-wife is a former porn star. But we were talking and it got real good and innocent on the phone. She has a two-year-old daughter. Okay. And I wanted to, I was on the phone with her when she took her first steps. So every, so I wrote down that it was 10.02 a.m. I think it was November 21st, 2020. 
And I started, and she says, oh my goodness, all the time. So I, every time I'm on the phone with her, I write down little things that her daughter used to blurt out. And I wrote a children's book, and it's kind of a mystery. I wrote myself in as the father. I was hoping that she and I could go further, but we couldn't. That lasted about a year, I guess, this last okay. year. And How was, has that been selling? Oh my goodness. I don't know. I don't check, and I don't think it does. I haven't promoted it. I, I wrote okay. it so it would always be on Amazon. And I told her, I said, you know, in five years from now, we don't know each other anymore. Or 10 years from now, when you grow bitter and you say men are dogs and they only want one thing. I said, I want you to be able to look on Amazon and tell you and your daughter or you can tell your daughter or tell the people like, no, I know one guy who did not want to touch me, did not want anything from me. And he wrote a book about me and my daughter so that for ever forever it never goes out of print it's in their kdp program forever your daughter knows that from the time that she was two years old a stranger thought that she was so special that she was so much of a somebody that he wrote a book with her on the cover and all about her quotes as she grows along the way we're trying to find out okay. what she'll be when she grows up and it's like a mystery it's like a 20 30 page and i said so that's why I wrote it. Okay. I said, she'll always have that forever. And there's another book, isn't there? Well, I wrote like seven. I have yeah, several that's, books. Now, that's the so children's book. That's, okay, that's the children's book. Right. And then you have several other books which are also available on Amazon, correct? Yes. Okay. I want to thank you. Thank you. I want to thank, thank you for being so candid. And I know this was not easy. Um, and we will probably meet again, Mickey. I hope so. And I, I, I know about you. I always have my, my backup. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. You take good care and we'll talk again. Bye-bye. Right. This is Dr. Jody J. DeLuca signing off. Take good care, America. Thank you for listening to Inside America's Minds. Don't forget to check out our YouTube channel, Inside America's Minds with Dr. Jody J. DeLuca. The views, information, and opinions expressed on the Inside America's Minds podcast series and on any other related social media pages are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any third party. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional psychological, psychiatric, or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay seeking treatment because of something you have heard on Inside America's Minds or have read on any other related social media pages. For emergency situations, be sure to call 911 or go to the nearest emergency department.